Good morning, Third Street. How's everybody feeling? Okay. Mm. <laughs> it's tough, bro. It's tough. I got to do something to pick us up this morning. Um, well, if you've been with us, you know the series that we've been in. It's called Verified. Wake up this morning. Can you say verified? verified? Nah, say it like God put breath in your lungs this morning. Say verified. verified. That's what I'm talking about. As you know, the, um, we've been going through this series called Verified that is um, walking through every account of Jesus appearing post-resurrection. And it all culminated. It started with, the, with Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And it all culminated last week as we observed and we celebrated Pentecost Sunday, which is the Sunday that God made it possible for him to reside with us, within us, at all times, in all places, as the Spirit fell on the disciples. And I know what you're thinking. That was such an incredible climax. Two Sundays ago, we saw Jesus ascended. Last Sunday, we saw the Spirit descend onto us. And that feels like an appropriate conclusion to that series. But just like the Marvel movies post-credit, there is actually just a little bit more. There is actually one more appearance post-Pentecost, of Jesus being resurrected. It may be a story that you're familiar with. It may be a story that this morning you're going to hear for the very first time. But it is probably one of the most famous and influential of the conversion stories and of the appearances that Christ has post-resurrection. If you would, meet me in the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, we are turning to the ninth chapter. We're going to back up in Scripture just a little bit. Uh, Acts 9, we're going to start in verse 1. So, Jordan, if you have that, that would be amazing. Verse 1. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go there. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can do what I'm about to do and rely on the screens uh, in, in front of us to get us there. While the screens catch up, I'm going to go ahead and get started reading, if that's all right. It's summer, y'all. It is what it is. Here we go. This is Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priests and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women... Who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus. The one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do from there. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. 
So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Now we can drop down to verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. This is somebody that the Lord had come to in those verses in between that we're skipping over because we don't have time today. Uh, So Ananias departed and entered to the house where Saul was staying and laying his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. It's a classic trope, classic trope in TVs, in TV and movies. A trope that is based in reality. I'm sure you'll catch instantly a movie uh, that subscribes to this. It's It goes something like a character sees only part of something and then connects dots that may or may not even be there, landing at making assumptions about the rest and landing at a conclusion upon which to act, however misinformed it may be. And the actions that they go on to execute with their half-aware perspective cause conflict. And typically, it culminates in this climactic epiphany-type moment where they realize, oh, I didn't have the full story. I didn't have the full perspective It's in one of my favorite movies of all time. Don't laugh when I tell you this, but it's Hitch. What is your problem? I literally just said. Hitch is dope. I don't care what anyone says. Hitch is super good, but it's in Hitch. Sarah Milas, right, a.k.a. Eva Mendez. Sarah Milas um, draws conclusions about Hitch based on connections that he has and people that he meets. And the way that she decides to act on the conclusions that she comes to ultimately destroys Hitch's business and destroys a whole lot of relationships in the process. You can easily find this same plot in so many other major films. And if we're honest we can find the same trope in our own lives where we have passionately acted before gaining full perspective. I would argue that the story we just read about Saul, who would go on to be more commonly known as the Apostle Paul, features the same elements we recognize in these films. However, Rarely, if ever, do we allow for Saul's actions to be something that is so relatable to our own lives. Let me, let me explain. The first time we meet Saul is in Acts chapter 7, the very end. 
where the scene is Stephen, a beloved disciple, a beloved follower of the way. It's just another way of saying at that point in time, the church or Jesus's followers. Um, Saul was a beloved disciple. And upon his profession of faith, as KT told me earlier this week, upon him preaching one of the dopest sermons in all of Scripture, a whole lot of people get real riled up and angry with Stephen because what he's preaching is about a Messiah that was crucified, and that doesn't quite line up with their ideologies. And so they decide to go ahead and kill him, even though they had actually no authority to do so. But it's crazy that when you have pop culture on your side, sorry, I mean when you have the masses on your side, what you're able to execute and get rid of. It's amazing. And so they're canceling, sorry, they're stoning Stephen They're stoning Stephen in the midst of doing so. They lay their garments because, you know, they can't quite get the full range of motion with their jackets on. So they lay their jackets down at a young man's name who's sitting there giving the thumbs up. And that young man who was watching their jackets as he approved of said execution, his name was Saul. And as you turn the page into chapter 8, it says that Saul approved of this execution. He not only approved of this execution... But he began himself, it says in verse 3, ravaging the church. He would enter house to house. And if he found man, woman, or child who was a follower of the way, he would drag them out into the streets for them to be arrested and at times to be killed. In the beginning of our text this morning in chapter 9, it says that he was still breathing threats and murder. Specifically, against those who professed the name of Jesus and were followers of the way. But here's what we need to understand about Saul. Saul was not an atheist murderer. Saul's actions were not, were not actually all that unattainable or remarkable in comparison to our own. See, Saul was deeply religious. He was very passionate about the things that he believed. See, Saul's upbringing, though he boasted Roman citizenship, Saul's heritage was that of the Hebrew people. Saul was a Jew. Saul followed the law of Moses. Saul believed in Moses. Saul believed, I would say even more so, in Elijah a passionate figure of the Old Testament who was willing to do whatever necessary to fulfill the law and protect God's people in the process of God restoring Israel. And so what Saul saw was that the followers of Jesus were a threat to Israel. They were a threat to what he believed God wanted to do in his set-apart people. They were a threat Because Jews were converting to following Jesus daily. Every day, more and more Jewish people. Once upon a time, people who subscribed wholly to the law of Moses realized that the fulfillment had come and was crucified and was resurrected. In other words, Saul realized 
that Christians were a threat to his theology, to his ideology, and to what he believed God wanted to do with his people. And he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to do something about it. And I believe his Roman citizenship and growing up in the Roman Empire probably gave him the perspective that he had the power and the strength to go do something about it. He likely saw himself as a dedicated soldier of God, not as a murderer, but as somebody who was doing what was necessary for the sake of Yahweh. But even in his observance of God, clearly he did not consult with God. Because had he consulted with God, what he would have heard the father say is, that's my son. That's my son that you're persecuting. That's my family that you're trying to put out. Point one of three this morning, then I'm out your way, is that we are at times very passionate about the things that we believe. But before we act, we ought to gain godly perspective. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, right? Y'all know me. I'm a passionate dude. I'm pretty extreme in some extenses, uh, or in some instances. I'm all in or all out. And when I get excited about something, you're going to know about it. I get that. What I'm not telling you is to not be passionate, to not be zealous. I'm not saying any of that. That would be really out of character for me to say, God-given. What I am telling you is that I think too often... We act on said passions without first taking pause long enough for God to give us the appropriate mindset through which to act, right? We do it all the time. Let me step on some toes. How about our politics? A lot of us are really, really, really passionate about certain social issues that are fought over in Congress. Really passionate. Don't look away. I'm friends with you on Facebook. And some of you I'm not, but that's a whole nother, you know, what I'm saying. Doesn't mean it don't pop up. The Lord brings it to me. No, I'm playing. All right, listen. Some of us are really passionate about our politics. And I get that. I actually believe that some of your discontent with these social issues is holy. Can I tell you that? We talked about it a few weeks ago. I actually believe that that is a holy discontent set in your heart by being a follower of Jesus. However, some of our actions, some of our postings are just the littlest bit misinformed. How about our service? That's good, right? We get passionate about our service. We get passionate about the things that we give our time and our lives to in the name of Jesus. We get real passionate about that. I love that about us. But 
When we feel that passion, when we feel that discontent in our heart, when we feel God stir something within us, I feel like too often we don't pause and let God give us the appropriate perspective to have. We don't pause long enough to listen to God. We decide to just go ahead and act. We go ahead and just put ourselves out there. And you know what that leads to? That leads us to serving in a whole lot of misinformed ways and actually doing more harm to a community than good, but we do it in the name of Jesus, so it's fine and covered, right? What about our passionate correction of the church? Those of us who grew up in it love to do this, right? We love to talk about this church, that church, what they're doing, what they're not doing, what they preach, what they teach, how they take up offering, how they pray, how they do other things. We love to be passionate about talking about God's church, but not often enough do we pause to let God give us some godly perspective, which leads us to say some things that if I remember scripture correctly, it says slander is on the same level as murder. So I guess that would mean that you also are killing the church. But that's none of my business. How about our passionate relationships? How about our relationships with people? We get so geeked. We get so amped up. We get so hyped about the relationship that we have with people. It takes us to go a little bit too far according to God's standards, doesn't it? We just want to passionately show how much we love and care for somebody. We just want to passionately show all of the ways that we really care and how like in for this person we really are. But it, 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 takes, us, it takes us further than the boundaries God lays for us, doesn't it? See, church, we can be passionate about a whole lot of things. And believe me, take it from pastor, I'm with you, right? But if we don't consult God on how he would have us address our passions, then we can cause damage, severe damage to whatever we're attempting to love, having only partial perspective. I got to keep it pushing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm going to give some of you relief. I got I to gotta keep moving, right? Because as Saul is on his way to Damascus by support and order of the Sanhedrin and the high priest, he's on his way to Damascus. And I believe that his whole perspective is that he is on a mission from God. He is on his way to do God's work in Damascus. And N.T. Wright, as well as a whole lot of other New Testament scholars, speculate about what Saul was doing while he was on the road to Damascus. It wasn't a short ride. It was about a six-day journey. So what did he do the whole time? Wasn't nobody on ox. There was no ox, right? So what are you doing? And being that he was a passionate Jew and being that he viewed himself as doing God's work on the way to Damascus to do God's work, I think it's incredibly reasonable for us to assume that he was practicing prayer and meditation. That he was actually, that he was actually spending time in ritualistic prayer that would have been common in Jewish heritage. A common prayer and a common meditation would have been to reflect 
in order of a vision that was given to Ezekiel back in chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. The vision of a throne chariot. And in this practice of a prayer, you pray by beginning to focus on the spokes, by beginning to focus on the wheels of said chariot, just as it was revealed to Ezekiel in a vision. And then in this vision, as he began to look up, then you focus on the throne. You focus on the actual chariot itself. And then with hope, you look up into the face of the one riding on the chariot. And in Ezekiel, when he reaches this point of the vision, he realizes the glory of God and falls on his face. I believe the same is likely true for Saul in that as he was practicing the prayer and meditation of the throne chariot, as he focused on the wheels, then moved his meditation up to the seat, and then looked up for just a glimpse of God's glory and God's face, I believe he got it. I believe that that is when the light flashed, shone in his eyes. And when faced with the light, when faced with the glory of God, he falls to his face. Saul falls to his face and asks, who are you, Lord? That's why I think that, because immediately he recognizes that this is God, if only for a moment, peeling that back, the curtain that exists between our world and whatever spiritual realm he dwells in, for a moment, peels back the curtain and shows himself just to Paul, just to Saul, resurrected. And immediately he recognizes this is God. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it is. I really like can't even tell you completely like with full understanding who it is. I just recognize that this is the Lord that I serve. And in the very next sentence, it is revealed as Jesus speaks. This is Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Jesus says, it's me, you know, the one that you're, uh, what's that word that y'all like to use, persecuting? It's me. Saul realizes in this moment that not only has he made a horrible mistake, but he also realizes that he's got to make a shift in his life, that he must repent and immediately change the direction of his service. The second point that I want to, for you to take away from this encounter this morning is that when we posture ourselves to listen, Jesus meets us in ways we understand. When we posture ourselves to listen, Jesus meets us in ways we understand. Saul was not going to acknowledge the ministry of Jesus, not in a positive way. Saul was not going to admit that Jesus even might be anything other than a madman. Saul was not going to observe anything that would go on to be written in the New Testament, which is ironic because he would go on to write half of it. Saul would have only observed and given credit to the old 
Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. So how appropriate is it that Jesus decides, bet, I will show myself to you then, resurrected through the lens of a reading of an Old Testament prophet. But the key, the key is that we've got to make space for it, right? I don't know about you, but when I'm on a mission, I get locked in. For most part, I love to, I do love to vision and strategize about the future. But once that's settled, when it's time to like execute or go through with it, I like to just go with the flow. Like I really don't like to, I really don't like the whole, like I do well in structure. I just don't really want to provide it for myself. I'm pretty like go with the flow like that, right? Except for some reason when I'm traveling. I don't know what it is about travel, whether it be by plane or by car, but I turn into a different human. Like I'm locked in. When I get locked in on a destination that I have not yet arrived at, but I know that I'm going to, I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want you to distract me. I'm not open to interruption. I want everyone to relax, be quiet, follow me, and don't raise any concerns until we get there. I'm not stopping for food. I'm not stopping for the bathroom. You better figure that out on your own time. We getting there, sir. I don't, I don't want to stop. I don't, I don't, I don't. And I don't know if you resonate with that or not. I don't know if I'm alone in that or not. I see a couple like four, five, 11 stoppers in the midst. But just imagine, if you will, like sometimes when we get so locked in, we are not open to any type of interruption, whether it be spiritual or not. Sometimes we get so focused on something. Sometimes we get so locked in on a perspective that God himself could reveal himself to us while we ride our horse and we'd be like, that was weird. Sometimes we get so locked in on a path that we have decided for ourselves and then wonder why God's not meeting us in the midst. Sometimes we get so locked in on a perspective that social media informed for us and then wonder why our actions don't seem to be so godly when we carry them out. Perhaps we're locked into something that is well-meaning or well-intended, but is not actually in the will of God for us to fulfill. Maybe. Just thinking out loud. But the good news that we can take from Saul's experience is that the way we avoid getting locked in like that is making sure that all along the road, all along the path, we pause and take time for prayer and meditation. I'm an angry driver. If it's yellow, it's green. And if it's red, how long? But sometimes we need to recognize those intersections in our journey as times to stop. Yes, 
and reflect and seek God. Am I still going the right way? Because more often than not, the reason that I miss my exit on the highway is because I'm in the far left lane not trying to slow down. And the beautiful thing that we learn from Saul's conversion is that if we are faithful to make space for prayer and meditation, Jesus is faithful to come into that time and show himself to us in ways that we'll get it. Man. And then there is an expectation of action, not before, but after that moment. Right? So Saul falls on his face and immediately cries, Lord, he doesn't even know what's next. He barely even knows what he's facing. But he immediately recognizes this is God, falls on his face and puts himself in a posture of service to the Lord. Says, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's about to happen, but I am in service to you. And Jesus gives him instruction. And as he stands up to go carry out the instruction, he says, go over there and I'll tell you more. Okay, let me go over there. Oh, crap, I can't see. He realizes he's blind. Saul is forced to rely on on the help of fellow travelers to get to his destination. And along the way, as he awaits instruction, he decides to not eat or not drink. In other words, he fasts. He eliminates all things that he can rely on that's not named God and says, I will do this until I get my instruction from you. And then even once he gets to said destination, he still requires the prayers and blessings of another member of the church to pray with him and bring clarity. So all along the way, upon his his, uh, interaction with Jesus, in an effort of carrying out the action that the Lord gave, he is fully reliant on Jesus' provision to get there, to make it happen, to meet his needs, and to see it through. Saul is put in a spot where he has no choice but to be fully reliant. The same way God did it to Zechariah, the same way he did it to Saul. He's like, you know what? I don't even want you to rely on what you're good at. Give me that sight. I need you to be reliant on me. I don't need you to start second guessing. I don't need you to start wondering if you're doing the right thing. You are. Give it to me. And then, and only then, do the scales fall from his eyes and he's able to see clearly. And guys, if you keep reading in Acts 9, not two sentences later, my guy is preaching in the temple. He walks in there, people are like, hold up, yo, everybody hide. This is the dude that uh, kills Christians. And he's like, no, 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 he is risen. The last thing that I need us to take away from this interaction is that when we're fully reliant on Christ, we see clearly the mission in front of us. When we're fully reliant on Christ, and only then, not what we think we know, not what we lack, not what we're good at, when we're fully reliant on Christ, only then will the scales of this world, the filters of our social media feeds, 
the words of our pagan friends, the bad advice from people that you ought not be taking advice from. Only then do the scales of pop culture, only then do the scales of our favorite politician, only then do the scales of our learned experience from our upbringing and our generational chains, only then do those scales fall to the ground for us to be able to see clearly. And guys, I can't, I can't not emphasize the point that when we're fully relying on Christ, there's no way we can go alone. When we're fully relying on Christ. We need the help of fellow travelers to help us get to the destination. I know a lot of y'all are like me. And you think that like once you get a clear idea of what's coming, you think you can get there. I was put in a situation a couple weeks ago where I was uh, leading leading a training for uh, this company in the D.C. area. And this wasn't, <laughs> this was not a Christian environment. This was not a place for me to, uh, to preach. This was, this, was, this was a business arrangement, right? And in preparation for this, my, uh, my partner that I do this business with, she looks at me and she, said, she says, listen, um, are, are you ready? And I was like, I'm chilling. Like, yeah, I got this. Like, what? This is what I do, right? Just being real, that's what I said. And she looks at me in a way that uh, I would only receive from her. And she says, look, you're really good in most environments just relying on the things that God himself has made you good at. But this is not that. She said, you cannot go into this place and rely solely on your charisma, on your ability to speak, and your on-the-spot reactionary skills. You cannot. You need to be prepared. And you need somebody else. You need to rely on the partner that I have provided for you. And together, you need to get there and then make a plan for how you're going to do it. The point is, I was fully prepared to just handle it myself. I was fully prepared to be like, mm, I'll figure it out when I get there. And that wasn't good enough. Not for this. When you're talking about the mission of God, when you're talking about his salvation plan for the world, when you're talking about his will, when you're talking about the things that he wants to work out in our broken and fallen world in the process of restoration, you can't figure it out yourself. You can't handle it yourself. And as a practice, what we learn from this interaction is that it might be good for us to go ahead and take away the other things we can be too dependent on instead of his grace and mercy. If that means you take away food, I'd be sad for you to go all the way to D.C. and not get to eat some of those restaurants. But hey, you got to do what you got to do. If that means that you put boundaries and parameters on your screen time, Man, your friends are going to miss all your likes and subtweets, but I, it may just be good for you to do. Whatever it is that takes you away from full reliance on God, even if that means maybe you give up 
some of that safety net financially you've been sitting on. And I can't help but notice that God wants to use this as a way that we function as a part of the bigger picture. God could have God blinded Saul and then three days come back to him himself and been like, okay, now you can see, go. But he didn't. He sent another part of the body, which is just a further testimony that I don't have time to go into, is that, is that your ministry or whatever you're doing for the Lord cannot function apart from the body of Christ. It cannot function apart from the church. If you're like, no, this is like not the church, this is like separate, but you're not pointing back to Jesus's body, it ain't, it ain't God ordained, and that's not the way that it works. We can't go alone, and it's only when we're fully reliant on his words, his provisions, his ideas, that we actually are able to see what we need to do in front of us. All that being said, let me say this. If you hear nothing else that I say, I pray that you listen in this exact moment. Look at everybody reposturing themselves. You're ready. I'm glad. I love that at Third Street, those of us who call this home and family, I love that for the most part, we're a people who passionately serve in so many ways. I love that so many of us are obeying our convictions from the Holy Spirit to be sent to so many different margins of our society. I love that about us. And honestly, it's part of what makes me think I could never be a part of something different. But my encouragement to us this morning is to not rush to action without consulting God. The grievances on your heart as you walk your neighborhood is real. The conviction in your spirit as you pass our homeless friends on the corner of the highways is serious. And the inadequacies of so many systems in our city that do an injustice to the next generation are deeper than what you've even observed. And it should compel you in some way to action. But please, consult God first. Take time and space to listen for the Lord to speak to our hearts. For the Lord to bring along the fellow travelers that will help us get there. And remember that when and only when we are fully reliant on Christ, not our own ideals, not our own talents, not our own perspectives, only when we are fully reliant on Christ is the task ahead as clear as it can be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that your words are timeless and they are true. God, we acknowledge your infinite wisdom and your infinite creativity. We acknowledge that your kingdom is at hand 
and your kingdom is at work. And God, we desperately want to see your will be done on this earth. We desperately want to see you win in all points of tension in our world. So Lord, give us today what we need to join that fight. Father, if we lack perspective, we open ourselves up to you to give perspective. God, if we lack motivation in this time, we open ourselves up for your spirit to give us motivation. Lord, if we lack clarity, understanding, companionship, discipleship, submission, whatever it is that's been holding us back from fully, from fully acting in accordance with your will and outside of our own, We ask for forgiveness and guidance from your Holy Spirit in this time. And God, I pray as we figure out how to navigate all of the things that are along the path you're guiding us on, I pray that your Spirit would remind us to stay disciplined, to avoid said things, and to remind us by allowing us to see and experience the fruit of your spirit at work. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver our minds, deliver our hearts, deliver our souls, deliver our neighborhoods, deliver our workplaces, deliver our families from the evil that the enemy sends forth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All who believe say, bless up.